2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: I'm Laura Stark, I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University. I had the great pleasure to talk with Elise Burton about her 2021 book, Genetic Crossroads: The Middle East and the Science of Human Heredity. Elise is assistant professor in the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at University of Toronto. Elise is trained in Middle East area studies, but I got to know her work first as a historian of science. And if you're interested in exploring more of Elisa's work, I really admired her 2019 article called Red Crescents, Race, Genetics, and Sickle Cell Disease in the Middle East, which builds on chapter four of her book, and which appeared in the History of Science journal called ISIS in 2019. Another article, among many others, is narrating ethnicity and diversity in Middle Eastern and National Genomics Projects, which appeared in the journal Social Studies of Science in 2018. Elise earned her Ph.D. in history and in Middle Eastern studies from Harvard University and then held a prestigious junior research fellowship at University of Cambridge. At the broadest level, Elise is interested in trans-Asian scientific collaboration and non-European concepts of whiteness and white supremacism. Thanks for listening to our conversation. It was a collaborative interview among Elise, myself, and graduate students in my Vanderbilt seminar on speculative fiction and bioethics called Critical Bioethics. So to start off, I did want to register um, both our thanks and that we're talking um, at least on Thursday, April 22nd. So this is the day after the US courts announced the verdict um, in the trial of the murder of um, George Floyd. Um, And I just wanted to register that to sort of contextualize for listeners the moment in which we're talking. Um, And also because one way to read this book is as a book about nationalism, which is looking at nationalism through a history of the sciences of heredity. And one of the things that um, comes through in the book is how race and nation are entirely fused. So it's not like they're working towards the same project, but race and nation are just completely inextricably linked. And it matters for who um, is seen to belong in public spaces, who is taken to be a legitimate target of violence, whether it's acute or structural violence or even epistemic violence um, in the sciences. But the center of this story in Genetic Crossroads, um, the geopolitical center is the Middle Eastern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, So that we call the Middle East just for, for ease and shorthand. And this includes the present day countries of Israel, Syria, Iran, Lebanon, Turkey, Greece, um, and others as well. Um, And the Middle East in this book, it does not function as a case study in the history of heredity, nor does it serve as sort of a periphery to a Euro-American metropole. But instead what you're doing is you're making the case that Middle Eastern geopolitics have fundamentally structured the modern sciences of heredity. So this history of the Middle East is baked into medical genetics as we know it today and um, other sciences of heredity, including um, genetic
1: anthropology,
0: um, and in the early 19th century, seroanthropology, anthropometry, um, and and, and other fields as well. And so you're showing that they are organized around the concepts, materials, and infrastructures that emerge from these precise political, economic, and military sort of violent shifts in 20th century Middle East. Okay, so the book covers a century, basically from the early 19th century to um, early 20th century to the present day. And it has these three geopolitical inflection points. So these three kind of Moments that organize the three sections um, loosely. The first is the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The second is the aftermath of World War II and um, uh, practices and discussions around um, repackaging uh, eugenics and genetics research. And then the reverberations of the aid and emergency and the Six Days War um, around the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s. Um, and this is the moment in which um, Israel just crushed these, um, the Arab forces of Jordan, Syria, and Egypt that fundamentally kind of remapped the Middle East. Okay, so to start at the beginning with these kind of three moments, what do we need to know, um, big question, about the fall of the Ottoman Empire and why this moment is important for understanding the history of the sciences of heredity?
1: Yeah, so it's a big question, but I, I do think it's important to sort of suss out what's going on both politically and scientifically, essentially at the same time. Um, and it might be proper um, not only to say it's the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but just World War One as a moment generally, because I do think what's going on um, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, you're also seeing in terms of the collapse of the Russian empire, the Habsburg empire and so on. So it's not so far removed of course, from what's going on um, in Europe, which is more familiar I'm sure to to some of the listeners out there. Um, So basically what's happening with the collapse of the Ottoman empire um, is you see um, the hope of the allied forces. So here I'm of course talking about uh, the British empire Uh, and the French um, and actually at this point uh, the Italians Um, and the the Greeks, they're all looking to actually sort of cut out their own piece of the pie of these former Ottoman territories. Um, So even the country that we now know today as the Republic of Turkey, um, the allies were expecting not to let that remain as a freestanding country. They were hoping to carve up even that territory in separate ways, as well as um, dividing up what we now know as the Arab countries, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine and what would eventually become Israel, all of those borders were drawn in the aftermath of World War I, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and what was subsequently, you know, what the Turks would call the war uh, for their independence, essentially their national struggle, Um, in order to create the borders of what we now know as modern Turkey. Um, So all of that border making, um, which was done, you know, through violent processes, I'm sure it doesn't need to be said, you know, um, ongoing war after 1919. So we think of the World War um, as ending after 1919, but there's ongoing violence for several years in the Middle East after this point. Uh, What's happening is you have uh, the mandate system being formed. So Syria and Lebanon were um, part of what was called the French mandates um, and what we now know as Iraq, uh, Jordan and uh, Palestine, Israel. These were under British mandate control, which was essentially, you know, colonialism under another name. You know, it was sanctioned by the League of Nations. It was um, allegedly designed to to help um, these new nation states, you know, set up their own governments. But it was designed to prolong um, and sort of expand really uh, European imperial control in the Middle East. Um, At the same time as all of these political machinations are going on, um, there's a really important new um, scientific technology being developed to Uh, try to do racial categorization. So of course, as I write about in the first chapter, you already have since the 19th century, anthropometry. That's something we well know uh, in race science, right? Measurements of human bodies as well as human remains, uh, which is very pertinent to current events right now. Um, But uh, a major technology that's being developed right at the turn of the 20th century is the discovery of human blood groups. Um, And we are probably familiar with those now, mostly in a medical context, the relevance of the ABO blood groups, later the rhesus blood groups as well, the relevance of those groups for blood transfusion. Um, However, really before the technology of blood transfusion was even perfected, they were already, uh, the the scientists who had discovered, had made these discoveries, were already curious as to whether you would see racial differences in the distribution of uh, these, you know, the four blood groups. Um, And so what I write about, again, in the first part of the book, is um, all of these kind of wartime upheavals, the attempt to create new nation states and more importantly to create um, national identities for the people living in those states is coinciding with new ways of trying to detect race scientifically. Um, So essentially what's happening is the idea of blood um, as being one's lineage or ancestry is no longer a metaphor. It's actually being turned scientifically into something that's supposed to be able um, to separate groups um, into racial and and also sort of subracial categories. so, I think these are sort of the two things. On the one hand, scientific developments, on the other hand, um, all of these new political, uh, very complicated things going on, movements of people, right? So, at the same time that you're throwing up new political borders, um, people are being made to inhabit those borders differently. Um, so both of those things are really key to understanding the development of um, obviously what's going on in the Middle East, but I would say the whole future of genetics as it evolves after that point.
0: Yeah, so thinking about, as you mentioned, this project of border making as being simultaneously with a project of race making. Um, so after sort of roughly the or during the World War I period, this patchwork of new nations were recognized by by groups like, um, like the League of Nations. And simultaneously, um, sort of groups are working to define and delineate race. And so here's what was so interesting in the first section of the book, so chapters one and two, is how um, things that were cultural markers of difference, like um, languages, um, religious groups, sort of tribal histories that were traced to particular Bible stories, came to be organized, these cultural markers were organized under um, race, the banner of race, which was taken to be a scientific category. Um, So so you're showing us how it's important to recognize this direct connection between um, physical anthropology and and what would come to be medical genetics. And so here, um, I'd love to have Carrie chime in with a really uh, question building off of this. Yes, thank you so much for that. And also thank you for your time today. So one question that my group and I crafted together is in regards to how do sciences of hereditary such as seroanthropology and other anthropometric methods continue to perpetuate nationalist projects. And I was wondering if you could
1: speak on that a little bit. Absolutely, thank you. So uh, this is a great question because in a way um, it explains um, what people um, have have been sort of wrestling with me about this book as to whether or not, you know, national groupings um, are sort of the same thing as races. Um, In other words, can we talk about um, race uh, in the Middle East in the same way as we talk about race in other regional or national contexts. Um, And the the point that I try to make for why um, nationalism is an important way for understanding racialization in science is because um, so much of um, what was making it possible for scientists to do these studies was having certain kinds of national infrastructures um, that were uh, not only, you know, supporting this this work in any direct material sense, um, but rather um, giving a name to different human groups that were being studied. Um, So for example, when we're looking at um, the anthropometric and sero-anthropological studies as they're being done um, at the beginning of uh, these new nation states that are being created, How are these groups being described? Firstly, using a national marker, and then having identified these different communities that are having their blood sampled or their heads measured. Um, They are then within this national group, um, not always, depends on the country, but sometimes subdivided um, in uh, specific categories um, that are reflecting sort of questions, actually internal tensions over national identity. Um, So for example, in the case of Egypt, um, which is a country that had already had perhaps more so than other Arab countries in the Middle East, they had, you know, had a longer sense of kind of a distinct um, geographic identity, which lent itself well to the creation of like a nation's State with particular geographical borders. Um, what was really um, sort of at the core of national identity debates um, at, at this point, you know, we're talking about 1920s, 30s, 40s, um, is are the Egyptians Arabs or are they descendants of the indigenous pharaonic peoples or are they some kind of mixture? And if they are a mixture, um, is everybody in Egypt an? equal mixture of these two different, you know, uh, nation-defining groups, um, or are certain religious uh, categories, specifically what they were really interested in studying was the Coptic Christians on the one hand versus Muslims on the other side, um, and saying, are um, are the Copts, for example, these pure, these racially pure descendants of Pharaonic Egyptians, whereas Muslims, because Islam is associated with the, the coming of, um, you know, the Arab conquest over from the Arabian Peninsula, are Muslims more racially mixed? Um, And therefore in some way, do they have sort of less of a claim on the pharaonic past of Egypt? So these are questions that are already sort of animating um, the idea of what is the nation of Egypt? And these are fundamentally questions of ancestry and they're talked about explicitly at that time and still now in terms of race. Um, And so what these early studies are doing um, is they are trying to decide uh, sort of these burning questions of of political national racial identity um, by doing these studies and trying to see is there a difference in the frequency of blood groups between cops and Muslims or not, and these are um, you know, and the results were hotly debated. So even if one study seemed to come with a clear answer, then another, um, you know, set of scientists would do a similar study with a bigger sample size or with different antisera um, and come up with a, with a different answer. Um, and I think the most important thing to understand for why that's uh, ongoing so relevant today is that didn't change after World War II. It didn't change after the development of DNA sequencing. Still, similar studies are going on today. And that's not just a matter for, um, for example, the racialization of religious groups in Egypt. It's definitely going on in places like Israel and Palestine. um, In Lebanon, for example, the idea of ancient Phoenician DNA, um, is that something that modern day Lebanese people have? If so, is there more Phoenician DNA in the Muslims in Lebanon or different kinds of Christian groups? So that's being studied even today. It's not something that was only animating people in the pre-war era. It's something that's now trying to be addressed through studies of ancient DNA and the most sophisticated genetic sequencing um, technologies that we have now, it's still ongoing.
0: Yeah, so so interesting um, for both um, sort of empirical historical and also political political reasons. Um, You you knit and you show um, so clearly how the sort of colonial infrastructures and the scientific um, uh, uh, ways of divvying up reputation and authority in, in the Middle East Coming out of the blood grouping um, sorts of science, that this then set sort of the groundwork, the, the, the physical infrastructural groundwork um, for uh, traffic in, in blood samples and, and uh, uh, storing blood for then what would become uh, medical genetics. Um, and, and, and sort of DNA-based um, genetics. And this chimes with um, sort of the, the important work of, of folks that you're sort of in conversation with in the book, like Jenny Bangham and Joanna Radin. Um, and you specifically use the, the language of um, traffic in blood. And so I wanted just to have, we wanted to have you elaborate um, a bit on um, the choice of the word traffic In blood as opposed to for example an exchange or um, a flow sort of things that would imply different power relations um, and colonial relations so yeah can you tell us a bit more about the choice of word of traffic in blood
1: that's an excellent question and you know what no one's ever actually asked me that before um but i think if i can point to sort of um two actually very distinct things that that definitely influenced me toward coming up with that terminology is is actually um, coursework that I took during my PhD, um, really on sort of feminist theory um, and gender studies. And I was definitely very influenced, although I think sort of subconsciously um, about uh, using Gail Rubin's concept of the traffic in women um, uh, which is, uh, for anyone who hasn't read it here, it's this brilliant essay uh, by a brilliant scholar, Gail Rubin, who actually wrote it, I believe when she was an undergraduate. So uh, it's, it's this amazing piece of theoretical work for sort of understanding um, the place of women In society. So she's not only talking like literally about sex trafficking, um, but just how um, women um, are are essentially used um, uh, within um, broader social relations uh, between men. Um, And so that was something that's definitely sort of underpinning my way of thinking about what it means to be exchanging biological materials um, here. Um, and another, um, Uh, less sort of literal uh, connection. But but I think what was more at the forefront of my mind when I was writing this book is debates which are going on in the history of science and I think also in STS about the idea of the circulation of both technologies um, and scientific knowledge. Um, And there have been some very good critiques about um, I think what uh, some people have called hydraulic metaphors um, or water-based metaphors with circulation or flow um, and and people have said, well, um, those terms make it sound as though things are um, continuous and um, and that there's no sort of barriers to what is moving and when and to whom. Um, And instead we want a framework that really acknowledges um, the power relations most importantly, of who is at the receiving end of the traffic, what is being trafficked, um, who is kind of um, letting things stop and go through checkpoints. Um, And uh, also, I mean, if we think of traffic jams, you know, there's all kinds of moments um, when And the normal ways of doing science um, get stopped uh, for whatever reason, um, often temporarily, but sometimes permanently. Um, And so even though I I didn't really raise that explicitly um, in the book, now that I'm talking about it with you all, this is definitely something that um, that I was trying to capture, I, I think, through my choice of terms there. So thank you. That's a really excellent
2: question. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
0: This is fascinating because I was imagining um, something along the lines of, an, of the engagement with um, the debates over sort of the, the hydraulics metaphors, mm-hmm. as you said, and the flows and how that misconstrues what are fundamentally um, different positions of power that are being studied in the history in the history of science. Um, but the, this um, sort of call out to your training in, in feminist studies and to Gail Rubin is really interesting um, to see in that way. So building on the idea of kind of unequal um, quote unquote partnerships, um, Christina is going to um, take over with a question. Thank you, Dr. Stark. Yeah, so some of us wanted to ask you about um, um, how um, old research is often overturned by new scientific findings. That's one of the main points of the second part of your book. And you also explained that, you know, there's this trail of destruction that's often left by these discriminatory findings. Um, So how did anthropologists, along with ethicists, Partner with government bureaus in order to reconcile any inequalities that the science did create?
1: So this is a tough question um, and it may be painful to hear. I mean, I think actually in many of the contexts that I wrote about, um, there hasn't been an appropriate reckoning um, with the utter lack of ethics. Um, which underlies um, the collection of blood or DNA samples from many of the peoples that I've talked about. Um, In terms of how ethicists, I mean, definitely there are in fact activists who are trying to work on these issues now, But usually it's within um, a broader framework of of all kinds of rights that are being violated um, and not only these sort of past ethical ones. Um, So if we think for example, the kinds of um, reckoning that for example, in North America that NAGPRA was meant to address um, or some of the work that Emma Kowal has done in Australia about, um, Australian Aboriginal blood samples that are now being repatriated. Um, I, I'm not aware um, in the case of a lot of what I've written about um, that such things are really on the table. Uh, there are there are probably a few reasons for that. Um, in in several of the countries that I'm talking about. Um, it's not clear that a lot of uh, blood samples have in fact actually been preserved. In many cases, they were probably destroyed uh, for various reasons, even after having ended up, for example, in Western laboratories. Um, for example, I know a lot of the samples that were sent to Britain, um, I believe, have been destroyed um, without any attempt you know, to return them um, to the communities from which they were taken. Um, and the only reason they were destroyed is not for any um, ethical recognition of the problems of having these samples, but simply they ran out of room in their freezers. you know it was sort of a very practical reason <laughs> um, on the you know from the from sort of a British perspective um, And it's really uh, I think another reason why there hasn't um, been a lot of um, attempts yet is is' actually sort of a lack of recognition of how extensive this research was in the Middle East and how long it's been going on for and the fact that there was so much of this material actually being sent abroad. And so I'm, I'm hoping in a way, um, like I know, for example, um, I have students and colleagues who are interested in, in translating my book into Middle Eastern languages. And so it may be um, You know, I do hope that um, as people in the Middle East become more familiar with this history, um, that it might advance um, this as part of an agenda um, for what several of these groups are are trying to do in terms of advocating for their own rights. I mean, I think if I can just pick one example, um, the, the group of people that I refer to in the book as Akhtam, um, who activists would prefer to call themselves um, uh, um, the marginalized. This is the group in Yemen whose ancestry as to whether they were Arab or African was highly disputed, and they have these elevated levels of sickle cell disease in their population. Um, that is a group which is, you know, incredibly marginalized in so many ways that their primary concern is actually not even dealing with this history. In fact, it's it's probably true that this isn't even on their agenda because they have so many other things that just of basic survival um, that they need to have first recognized. Um, so I, I would say that I'm sorry that that might not be a very satisfactory answer to your question. Um, but I think that's part of the reason um, that Um, at least that I'm not aware of major movements um, to sort of address these issues in the way that we have seen successfully implemented in the Americas um, and in Australia.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, and the example of um, a sickle cell um, comes up in chapter four for folks who, who want to um, learn more about it. Um, and it does seem like one of the things the book is showing is that the particular sciences of heredity that are being um, fostered and supported through this these practices of sample um, collection and storage and trafficking um, are exactly perpetuating the marginalization of the groups on which they depend. So it's kind of producing this um, ongoing um, history and practice of dispossession. it, it, but the, the story is uh, we really the appreciate um, in, in part because it's not a simple victim villain story where um, either the scientists are all bad um, or, and the um, the research participants are all good or that there is a clear one side or the other because so many of the forms of violence and colonialism are nested or the power is so multifaceted and um, and one of the one of the story one examples that kind of gets at this a bit is um, the story of Batjiva Bonet and her professional interactions with the British genet- geneticist um, Arthur Morant. And so I wonder if you could um, just sort of tell us about this interaction and what it shows us about how things like the Changing um, possession of territory, shifting borders, um, the this precise moment of violence um, and the effects that it has on who has access to what materials, uh, what what we should be taking away from this.
1: Yeah. So. Bacheva Bonet is one of those really fascinating characters that I came back to over and over, even in other parts of my work, including other articles I've published. Um, And I think what's so appealing about her is on the one hand, as a historian, she has left um, the best letters behind (laughs) um, in different archives in which she's extremely expressive about what she's doing Um, and she also left behind a a great autobiography um, in Hebrew um, in which um, not always consistently but Uh, much more so than many of the other scientists' uh, papers that I was able to get access to, um, to sort of explain her feelings um, and actually like expose more of a rationale for why she was um, doing things in a certain way. Um, And she's a very complex character. um, And in some cases, she comes across as very sympathetic and in others... um, sort of tone deaf (laughs) as to uh, what she was doing. Um, So I think that's why she fascinates me a a lot as a historian. So if I can sort of very briefly summarize what was an extremely rich um, and interesting life. Um, So Bacheva Bonet um, was part of a family of Ashkenazi, you know, from Germany, um, who settled um, in uh, Mandate Palestine uh, before the State of Israel uh, was officially established in 1948, um, and so she she really grew up um, in what she considered to be this Middle Eastern milieu. She was, um, you know, a, a part of a dedicated family of Zionists, so she was definitely attached um, to um, that, you know, Israeli nationalism, Jewish nationalism, um, and. What's very interesting about her is that we can clearly recognize that she's part of a settler colonial movement in the Middle East. Um, you know, she came from a family that, that was you know, very well educated in Germany, even within Israel. This particular group of Jewish settlers is known for having like a very kind of European affect and um, a certain patterns of, uh, you know, kind of um, cultural behavior within Israel. Um, and yet, what I what I try to highlight in my book is the way that she positions herself as being essentially like a, a native of the Middle East, um, and so in her relationship with this British geneticist Arthur Morand, um, they their relationship essentially starts off at odds, and yet it's a lo- it's a very long relationship, you know, for over a decade of her career, um, so. She uh, um, she she's very academic. Um, she she goes through the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and then she goes to the U.S. Um, and it's there that she's trained um, first in anthropology and then in human genetics. So she also considers herself. Um, to sort of be um, a sensitive ethnographer, which is not something that most of the other geneticists um, either thought about themselves or considered important to their sort of work of collecting samples. So uh, when she's trying to do her PhD in genetics, um, she's really keen um, to do all her work on a particular religious community in Palestine called the Samaritans. Um, And they've been fascinating geneticists already, you know, for decades, uh, because this is a group um, that had only a hundred or a couple hundred members at that point in history. We're talking about the early 1960s right now. Um, And uh, that group claims that that actually they're they're sort of the original Israelites. They're, in fact, sort of the more authentic representatives of the biblical population of Palestine than any of the Jews who have come. Uh, to settle in Israel, you know, over uh, the centuries after the diaspora, so they have this claim, you know, this unique claim to being totally indigenous um, and also very endogamous. You know, they don't allow converts into the community, um, and they, you know, if anyone married out of the community, they would sort of no longer be considered a Samaritan. So, so this um, this community is considered extremely desirable, right, for genetic studies. Um, and so Bacheva Bonet is very excited to be working with this community. She, you know shes sort of already made friends, um, and she was all set to sort of start doing her, her dissertation, studying the genetics of this community. Um, and then she suddenly finds out that Arthur Morant, who's this very established senior British guy, um, who is, you know, collecting blood sort of vicariously, um, he, he stays in London most of the time, uh, but he's getting blood samples from all over the world. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't need a big break the way a PhD student might, so there's also that consideration. Um, uh, she finds out when she's trying to get a grant to do her research that this guy, Arthur Morant, you know, through a series of other collaborators, is already planning to go and study the Samaritans, and so uh, unfortunately he's the reviewer on her grant application, and so It's like every PhD student's worst nightmare, you know? (laughs) Um, Anyway, so she's kind of horrified by this discovery, but basically what's offered to her, uh, Borat says, well, I'll I'll basically share this project with you. So um, I'll go get the blood um, with a team of people because um, uh, Bacheva Bonet herself can't because the, the community is located across the Green Line um uh so that's in territory that we now know as the west bank at the time it was considered part of jordan um so the samaritans are mostly in the city of nablus that's where they are Bonet is an israeli citizen she's not allowed um you know to cross that border so in a way uh, they're making it out to be um a situation which will be beneficial for everybody so morant and sort of his protege who's based in lebanon um and also Bonet's own um, supervisor, an American guy named William Boyd, um, these these men uh, are gonna go off um, and do the blood collecting. um, And eventually they'll share some of those blood samples uh, with Bonet and she'll still get to to do her PhD. Um, So so that's the solution that's being offered. And Bonet from the very beginning is like, is very unhappy with the situation because as they're arranging the expedition, Um, The men are just so convinced that they know exactly what they're doing. Um, They think that all of the arrangements Bonet had tried to make in terms of cultivating a relationship with the community members, they really think that's a liability. And they're like, no, no, uh, we don't don't need that. We can just sort of fly in, extract the blood and and take off. It's actually not in our interest to... um, to compensate uh, these people for the blood they're giving. You know, they, they don't want entanglements. You know, that's definitely kind of the ethos of a lot of um, geneticists in this period. Um, and so then what happens is when they actually go on this expedition to Nablus and try to extract the blood, they run into all kinds of problems. And in the end, they're only able to sample, I think maybe a third or a quarter of the community's members. And Bonet is like, well, you guys ruined You were in my project. If you had listened to me, um, or if, you know, let me take more of a leading role in communicating um, with the members of the community, um, then things would have gone better. And she specifically writes in this letter to Morant, you know, being from the Middle East, I can perceive very clearly, you know, what's gone wrong. That's essentially what she writes um, in her letter. And so then uh, you're like, oh, well, what does she mean that she's from the Middle East? You know, she doesn't she's not a Samaritan. She doesn't belong to the community. So on what basis is she sort of claiming a certain kind of legitimacy that um, that these white guys don't have? Right. Um, And this actually forms the interesting basis of like a lot of her conflicts with Morant that persist, over the years, um, even as borders start shifting, right? As you said, um, in, in response to um, all of the military things that that are happening. So um, I, I don't know how long I, I should go on with just sort of explaining the outlines of the story, but basically like she, it's one thing that she maintains consistently whenever there's a problem with, um, with other populations as well, not only the Samaritans, but other groups she works on like the Bedouins of Sinai, which is a territory that comes to be occupied by Israel. She claims um, on the one hand, I'm from the Middle East and also I'm an anthropologist and I know better than you sort of how to sample these people and how to interpret the data. So she claims her identity, both professional and sort of where she was raised um, as being the, the basis for sort of her legitimacy as, as a scientist. And she's trying to leverage that against these older, senior British and American men who are otherwise kind of dismissing her role um, in the genetics work.
0: Your analysis of this, um, I think in, in chapter six, is so interesting because, um, the it it fits in with this history of who's considered sort of a technician and who is an authoritative knower. And what you're showing is it actually tax sort of occupying forces and military sort of interventions Mm -hmm. to scientific reputation. So when she can have access, um, exclusive access to, um, to these populations and these samples because of these identity based claims that she's making, it actually shifts how she's understood in terms of her scientific reputation and also her her scientific status. Meanwhile, um, all the the Arab communities that are involved um, in the research all, all of the scientists are just considering it on a model of resource extraction, of just coming and getting and using the resource, which is also um, so interesting in seeing that similarity between Betsy Babonet and, um, and Arthur Morant. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting. And building on this idea of sort of who is a, who is a technician and who is a, a sort of a scientific uh, status holding knower, um, and also thinking about collection methods more broadly Lily, um, wanted to ask a question on behalf of her group. Yes. Um, so we kind of read the book and Yeah, in the book, you talked a lot about um, the different kinds of research and data collection methods um, in the time period you were researching, but we were wondering, um, how have the research and data collection methods changed going into the 21st century, especially when looking at modern day projects that you mentioned in the conclusions, like the geographic
1: project and modern day research in Turkey and Iran? Okay, so I think um, in terms of the major changes that are happening, um, especially once we get to the 21st century. Um, The main one is actually bureaucratic um, and that is now um, these scientists are expected to have um, attained some kind of ethical approval uh, from some sort of institutional review board. Um, And the other one, um, sort of depending on what the scientists are trying to study is sometimes they're no longer taking blood, although blood collection does still happen. Sometimes it is done through something like a a saliva sample um, or a buccal swab or something that's considered to be sort of less invasive, right, than than blood drawing. so that's, that's one of the technological changes. I, I guess I would want to comment more on the question of um, these, these IRB, these ethical reviews and whether or not they have substantially um, changed things. Um, this is something I wrestle with a little bit at the end, I think of chapter seven, actually. Um, and I, I felt it was important to raise this issue because on the one hand, We now um, insist that anyone whose sample is collected um, has to give their informed consent. right? Um, And usually this would mean signing some kind of form. Um, And the idea is that simply by having the person um, give informed consent um, in whatever form that the IRB has, has deemed acceptable or necessary. Um, that this is somehow doing away with a large amount of the ethical problems that I've talked about in the book. Um, and my contention is I don't actually think that this is um, addressing um, the key problem of how, um, how this kind of genetic data is interpreted and used, and then how it gets filtered out into the social world's both in the Middle Eastern context specifically, and then the wider world more broadly. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is, so the specific incident I mentioned at the end of chapter seven is how, um, for example, uh, refugees of um, the recent military, you know, very violent um, ethnic cleansing that was done by ISIS um, in Northern Iraq against, for example, Yazidis and Assyrians. Um, And so those groups that were targeted already specifically for their, you know, ancestral religious cultural identities ended up in these refugee camps. Um, And then, um, study, you know, geneticists came in um, for various reasons. uh, a lot of it was was to do uh, to try to actually do forensic uh, related genetic studies um, that could help, you know, identify remains, you know, of the victims of this violence, and you know, hopefully um, reunite remains with with families and so on. So, so um, there's not uh, solely nefarious reasons for this genetic work, as, as I want to uh, make clear. Um, and so I can imagine that many of the refugees gave consent on, on this basis, um, that, you know, having their DNA sequenced um, would, you know, help them find out what happened to, to their family members. But then... Um, That data was also used to uh, do a population genetic analysis, which was made to say something about the ancestry and indigeneity of these people as well. So basically a paper was published saying, oh, you know, uh, the lineages of these people are shown, you know, to be very ancient and um, basically reinforcing the idea that the DNA of these people is identifiable in terms of uh, a population group that could be associated with certain kinds of of historical identities, um, biological grouping. So it's not just a family or individuals whose relations are being identified, but rather that you could in fact mark out this group using their DNA. So I think um, there's, there's danger to that kind of work, especially in as far as how it might later um, be used, you know, hopefully not to further target these people, but we don't know um, what the long-term effects of of that kind of work is. And um, I think another thing that I raised briefly in the conclusion to sort of reinforce the dangers of that kind of work Um, is how um, Jews and Palestinians, who are some of the most uh, genetically studied groups in the world at this point, um, uh, I believe some psychologists, right, did a study um, with um, Jewish people living uh, both in Israel and I believe also in the United States, um, and they were made to sort of read some article saying something about how closely related Jews and Palestinians are or are not, and how the reading of that kind of material about either being genetically related or unrelated then affected how um, these different Jewish people thought about the Palestinian conflict and the treatment of Palestinians. So the idea of genetic relatedness is not not just this total abstraction Uh, This sort of academic debate of finding out who is related to who, um, uh, you know, in the terms of DNA sequencing. Like it has, we know that it can have real world impacts Um, and in a region which is still, um, you know, threatened by all kinds of territorial violence um, and the territorial violence is justified on the basis of different kinds of competing national Um, identities and claims related to religion or other kinds of um, social differences. I don't think um, that the use of, you know, IRB informed consent um, is really going to solve what is the core um, ongoing problem, the way that this research is ultimately going to be taken up by uh, by communities in the region. Um, so that's uh, that's sort of maybe going aside from what you thought the answer to this question was going to be. Uh, but thank you very much for raising it.
0: Observations about um, how IRBs are sort of um, used and the sort of the American concept of um, both bioethics and informed consent um, is sort of appropriated in order to actually foster medical research that actually produces a lot of dispossession and discrimination. Um, It it inflects a lot with Adriana Petrina's work, I feel like, on on ethical variability. So this appropriation of what are um, seemingly morally upstanding practices to actually, underwrite things um, that are very contrary to the to the alleged aim um, of uh, of moral principles, um, and the your comments also inflect with Kim Tallbear's um, work. I feel like on epistemic violence and indigeneity, and thinking about um, your book showing so nicely exactly how this the the ways in which um, genetic um, materials genetic stories are interpreted and used um, can really affect you know, sovereignty claims, um, sort of uh, actual uh, settler violence and other forms of, um, of, of, um, of marginalization. And so um, I think just to, to sort of wrap up, just to say that this story uh, in Genetic Crossroads is basically revealing the assumptions that are built into um, uh, sciences of heredity in the present day. And so so on on this note, uh, we kind of wondered whether there's anything, any puzzles that are kind of left lingering for you and maybe what's exciting you right now. So I'm gonna hand it over um, to Olivia for this one.
1: Sure, so as you kind of gleaned from our, workshopping of our questions, we were kind of we were trying to situate um, your scholarship and the book within your scholarship. And so earlier you mentioned your encounter with Middle Eastern histories and sciences of heredity. And we were wondering how you're gonna kind of pivot from this work into new projects that maintain the same trajectory that you have with Genetic Crossroads. Thank you. This is a great question because it lets me talk about my new project, which I'm at very early stages, um, but extremely excited about. Um, so I think you are probably understanding that, um, when I wrote about race in the book, um, in a lot of ways, it's reaching toward sort of a history of maybe non-European whiteness, because I talked about the racialization of a lot of different groups, but most of them would have still been considered in these kind of international um, conceptualizations of uh, broad racial categories to still sort of count as white. And there were only a few sort of exceptional groups um, who were racialized in different ways as being either of African descent um, and also, although they didn't come up as often, of Asian descent. Um, and so when we're talking about a region, which if, you know, if we jettison the, the colonial term, the middle East, which, which, uh, which, which I've talked about this region and think about it as actually being Southwest Asia, which, I mean, technically, if we're going strictly in terms of directional geography, that's, that's really what it is. Um, I became interested in, um, sort of what were my blind spots while writing this book and focusing on this relationship solely of the Middle East to Europe and North America and thinking about it only as part of those um, scientific circuits. Like obviously I had a reason for that and it was to prove to people who do Eurocentric histories of science that this region is relevant to the histories that they know and write. Um, But I thought to myself, how how is it that we can only write about other regions and their histories in relation, you know, to this sort of North Atlantic um, center? Um, and so now I've started off in this project, um, which will continue looking at race and genetics, but it will also pick up on um, archaeology and forensic fingerprinting. So it will, those are the scientific areas it looks at. But my main focus is trying to look at collaborations between Middle Eastern scientists, especially Iranians um, and Turkish scientists and their collaborations with scientists in India and Japan. So I'm really interested in looking at what I'm sort of calling trans-Asian scientific collaborations. And it's something I stumbled across really by accident, because when I was looking at the history of genetics in Iran, I came across this whole expedition that happened in the 1970s where these Japanese scientists came to Northern Iran um, and did a whole bunch of sampling. um, And they were, you know, apparently working in collaboration with a few Iranian scientists. And then when I was reading sort of the output of of that, the scientific papers that came out, it was very clear that what was being authored only by the Japanese scientists had a very different tone about the racial identity of the people they studied, who they were calling, you know, partially mongoloid, these were the terms they were using, um, versus what the Iranian scientists were putting out, which is, you'll, you'll have seen the language in my book, the Iranians said, no, these people are Aryans, you know, they're white, they're Caucasoid. Um, and so that sort of launched me in this other direction. Like, what if we consider the history of genetics in the Middle East, Um, as part of this history of of Asian histories of racial identity and racialization. Um, And so that's sort of underlying, that's like the big framing question uh, for this next project that I'm hoping to do.
0: Super fascinating. Um, Well, we have a lot to look forward to then with sort of a history working towards ideas of um, non-European whiteness, um, and also this idea of trans-Asian, Um, histories and trans-Asian histories of science. Um, Elise, thank you so much both for your time and for a really fantastic book. We're really grateful to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of your students who came up with such terrific questions. I really appreciate having this conversation with you.